Finally, our last week uh, for this particular portion of Ephesians 1 is upon us, but uh, we're going to finish strong. Ephesians 1, verses 11 through 14. Once again, reading in the New King James um, rather than the usual ESV. And the New King James is the version in your pulpit Bible if you wish to follow along. Or it might even be on the screen. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Lord, we thank you so much for your living and active word, and we pray this morning that you would come and speak to your people. Waken us out of our slumber and show us your goodness and your majesty. Amen. Well, this is the second sermon on the theme of the life of the Christian man or the Christian woman as a life of trust. We understand that it's not church membership. It's not striving to be moral. It's not giving mental assent to certain Christian doctrines that makes someone a Christian. It's not praying some formulaic prayer or getting baptized that makes you a Christian. Indeed, to be a Christian is to be in a position of trust in Jesus Christ, in which we place our confidence in the Lord Jesus in such a way that we naturally do what he says to do and we trust him to do what he says he's going to do and we believe that what he says is true and we sense his presence and we sense his power to help us live life in a relationship where we're learning how to walk with him and learning how to follow him. Now last week we began to break that down a little bit and we only got through two out of six points, but I'll just review them very briefly. The Christian life is a life of trust. What do we trust Christ for? Well, first of all, we trust Christ for the reliability and the sufficiency of the Word of God, of the Bible. It's like Jesus says, my Word is truth, and we go, yep, and we just accept it. We believe it. We believe it in such a way that we, we do what it says. We wouldn't think to question it or say, no, nah, that can't be right. We just trust Jesus. But he gave us his word. He superintended his word. He superintended the passing down through history of his word. The Bible is an authoritative and trustworthy document. Second of all, we trust Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and for securing eternal life for us. And we're going to unpack that a little bit more later, but we're going to move on for right now. Thirdly, we trust Christ for the details and the direction of our lives. 
The picture that the Bible gives us, and particularly the words of Jesus himself in the Gospels, is of a completely good and completely competent God who administers the world that we live in down to the smallest details. Listen to what Dallas Willard says when he, when he meditates on this, this God who is trustworthy, this God who is with us, this God who is positioned, as he says, among us. He says this, with this magnificent God positioned among us, Jesus brings the assurance that our universe is a perfectly safe place for us to be. Doesn't feel like a safe place for us to be sometimes, does it? Feels like quite a dangerous place. There's little viruses running around that might hurt you. There's bad people that might hurt you. There's tornadoes and storms, floods, fires. The world is a scary place and Jesus says no. No, the world is a perfectly safe place for you. The very heart of his message, says Willard, as well as his personality and actions is found in such well-known words as these. In Matthew 6, my advice would be not to worry about what's going to happen to you, about what you have to eat or drink or about what clothes you will wear. Your life doesn't consist of eating and there's much more to your body than clothing. Take a lesson from the birds of heaven. They don't sow or reap or hoard away in granaries and your father, the one in the heavens around you, sees to it that they have food. Aren't you more important than birds? Who can change their physical features by worrying about them? And as for worrying about clothes, well, look at the little flowers out in the fields. They just pop right up. They don't slave away getting or making clothes. But King Solomon in his best outfit was not as glorious as one of these. Now, if God so adorns the wild grasses which are here for a day and the next day are burned for fuel, won't he do even better by you? You many faiths. So don't worry about things saying, what are we going to eat? Or will we have anything to drink? Or what will we wear? People who don't know God at all do that. For your Father, the one in the heavens around you, knows you need these things. Instead, make it your top priority to be part of what God is doing and to have the kind of goodness that he has. Everything else you need will be provided. Tomorrow? Don't worry about it. You can do your worrying about tomorrow, tomorrow. And anyway, enough will happen today to keep you in things to worry about until bedtime. This bold and slyly humorous assurance about all the basic elements of our existence, food and drink and clothing and other needs of life, can only be supported on a clear-eyed vision that a totally good and competent God is right here with us to look after us. We will never have the easy, unhesitating love of God that makes obedience to Jesus our natural response unless we are absolutely sure that it is good for us to be and to be who we are. This means we must have no doubt that the path appointed for us by when and where and to whom we were born is good and that nothing irredeemable has happened to us or can happen to us on our way to our destiny in God's full world. Nothing irredeemable has happened to you or can happen to you. 
I'm not making light of the things that can happen to you or have happened to you. I'm not saying they weren't hard, that they weren't painful. I'm saying they're not irredeemable. That the God that we sang about who turns graves into gardens and bones into armies can redeem what's happened to you and give you peace and heal your pain and bring glory to himself in what's happened to you. You see, one of the reasons that God preserved stories like the stories of the desert wanderings of the children of Israel is to show us that when we bring ourselves under the care of God, we don't need to worry about the things that people who don't place their confidence in Christ simply obsess over. Normally, God provides the plants and the animals that we use for, f- for food to fuel and to repair our bodies, and he provides the fibers or the stock materials to make the fibers for our clothing. Normally, God provides trees and stones and clay for brick and metal to dig from the earth to make our houses, and wood and coal and petroleum and natural gas and uranium to heat and to cool and to light our homes. And so we begin to think of these things as basic necessities. And they are. Because that's how God set things up to run under normal circumstances. But those things that God gave to clothe you, to feed you, to house you, to keep you warm, to give you light, to keep you cool in the summer, those are just intermediate things. God God normally uses them but he doesn't need them. He's quite capable of caring for you directly. And we see that in the whole book of Exodus, don't we? In Exodus, he takes this large group of people out into a harsh and an unforgiving desert where the basic materials that are normally needed to sustain themselves were simply not available. There wasn't enough food. There was not enough water. There was not enough raw materials to make clothing and shoes when those that they had had worn out. And they were worried about it over and over and over again. They were terrified about the fact that here we are with our children, there's nothing to eat. Here we are in a desert with our children, there's no water. Here we are in the desert and we got one suit of clothes and one pair of shoes. What's going to happen when those wear out? And what they found was that God sustained them. That God supplied food day to day. That he supplied water where there was no water. Their clothes and their shoes never wore out. Get this, the children's clothes and shoes grew with the children. Now, that's pretty cool. That means you're stuck with one outfit for your life. It does simplify dressing in the morning. I hope you like the outfit. But their clothes didn't wear out. Their shoes didn't wear out. Forty years of wandering in the desert and nothing wore out. I can't even get the t-shirts I buy to last for a year. And God sustained them. And he can do even more than that. Aaron. The brother of Moses, he had a a wooden rod, just a stick really, that was made from an almond tree. And God said, watch this. And he touched it and he caused it to grow leaves and then to grow flowers and then to produce almonds, even though it was just a dead stick. 
And he did it simply to show his power. That stick is in a box somewhere. We don't know where. It's in the Ark of the Covenant, along with a pot of manna, as a memorial to the faithfulness of God, to the people of God, as they wandered in the most harsh conditions of this God. It's a memorial of this God who cared for them, who didn't need the intermediate things that he created to care for them. He sustained Elijah on a 40-day journey through hard mountain country on two tortillas and a jar of water. He put life back into dead bodies. Why did he do those things? He did them to show people what he is like. He did them to invite people on a life of adventure and trust in him. It's an interactive life with him. It's a life described by Proverbs 16, 9, where a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Where the God who has numbered the hairs on your head and feeds each sparrow its daily portion of food and carefully superintends all of its days until the day that it falls to the ground. Because in the words of Psalm 104 and verse 29, he takes away their breath and they die and they return to their dust. And Jesus himself points out that the God who so carefully superintends the life of the sparrow values you much more highly than the sparrow. He says in Matthew 10, 31, you are worth more than many sparrows. So whoever tells you you're worthless, just tell them, no, I'm not worthless. I am worth more than many sparrows. That's what Jesus said. And God is caring for me. Fourthly, you can not only trust him with the details and direction of your own life, you can also trust him with the ones that you love. We may worry about what's going to happen to us, but we also worry at least as much and often more about the ones who we love. And this is especially true when they choose paths and make decisions that we fear will lead to really bad outcomes. We worry about our children when they start dating someone we don't approve of. Or they choose to take out giant student loans in order to get a degree in underwater fire prevention or something really useful like that. We worry about our spouse when we think they aren't eating healthy or taking care of themselves. We worry about our parents when they won't quit driving or when they won't move out of the house with the laundry in the basement that's down a rickety flight of stairs. We worry about dying and leaving our spouses behind. We worry about our spouse dying and leaving us behind. And most often, on the heels of worry come attempts to assert control over the outcomes, right? I I don't want my husband to die of a heart attack, so I'm gonna criticize him relentlessly anytime he opens a bag of chips. I I don't want my daughter to to date that guy, so I'm going to criticize him relentlessly whenever I see her. But 99 times out of 100, those attempts to control others are resented, even if they're not entirely successfully resisted. And spending all of our time trying to manipulate and control the people we're supposed to love generally has bad effects on our own spiritual health and character as well as theirs. 
You see, God designed human beings to be basically self-directing. And you, can make an, you can't make another person do one single thing. You can't make somebody do anything. You can't even make a dog do something. And I'll tell you that because I can't keep my dog out of my garden. I, I beat her like a wicked stepchild and she still won't come out of that garden. She's in there eating the tomatoes. She loves the tomatoes. It's like, what do I got to do to tell you no? Well, the minute you turn your back, there she is. You can't make anybody do anything. You can only take actions that make them regret having chosen the course of action that was different than what you wanted. I don't really beat my dog like a redheaded stepchild, sorry. You might do do something like that for a while with a small child, but, but you want the child to grow up. You want the child to be responsible, to learn to live wisely on his or her own. Let me ask you, do you know how that's best accomplished? Let them make choices. Let them bear the consequences of those choices and stay out of the way. Commend them to God. Thomas Akempis, a, a, a beautiful early Christian, medieval Christian, wrote this. He said, be not angry that you cannot make others as you wish them to be, since you cannot make yourself as you wish you to be. But we don't do that. And we don't do that because we're afraid that they'll screw up their own lives by making bad choices. And that's where we need to realize the deep truth that the most powerful thing we can do for a person is to commend them to Christ's care and pray for them. Believe it or not, God is far more powerful, far wiser, far more kind, and far more competent than you are. So pray for your loved one and then trust Christ for them. Your efforts to control your loved one's decisions along with your compulsive need to bail them out of the consequences of bad decisions, it only engenders bitterness and enables bad behavior and stunts the growth of their character. So say what you need to say. Say it once. And then give them to Christ. Fifthly, you can also trust Jesus for the dying times. Christians are often full of a kind of a, an ignorant bravado about their own death. Oh, I'll be fine. It'll be, nope, no, I'm looking forward to it. And, uh, and, and they hold that attitude right up until the time where it seems to be getting close. The sickness is more severe than they thought. The cancer is inoperable. The chemo isn't working. The Parkinson's advances or the kidney failure becomes too burdensome to manage. You know, a soldier can foolishly boast about how bravely he will confront the enemy while he's in the barracks during basic training and then find his heart melting like wax and his bowels turning into water when the bullets actually start flying over his head in a real battlefield when he's facing a real enemy. And death is a real enemy. Very few people can confront their own death when it actually draws near without at least some episodes of real fear. And some people know significant times of fear. And that's okay. You know, Jesus wept 
and he wept at the death of his own friend, Lazarus. Jesus sweated blood at the prospect of his own impending death. Death is an enemy. Death is ugly. Death is an evil intruder in God's good world. Death is a curse. It proceeds from sin. Jesus went to the cross to break the power of death. Satan uses death and the fear of death as one of his chief tools to control and dominate lost men and women. If you've got a Bible with you, open up to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2. It's in the back, almost a revelation, but not quite. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11. And what we have here is a wonderful message to us about this topic. Hebrews 2, 11, For he who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified all have one source, and that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For he himself has suffered when tempted and he is able to help those who are tempted. Now let's, let's break that down a little bit. In verse 14, it says that Jesus came and he took on flesh so that he could share in our nature and participate in our frail humanity. And part of that was that he partook of death so that by his own dying, because he was not deserving of death, because the wages of sin is death and he never sinned, but he went ahead and he paid that price anyway. And he did that to destroy the one who has the power of death, and that is Satan. And Satan uses the fear of death and the power of death to enslave us. And part of his reasons for doing so, it says in verse 17, is so that he was in a position to show faithful mercy to us precisely because he knows what it's like to die. I had a, a patient once, when I was a hospice chaplain, she was a youngish woman of about 37 years of age. And uh, one day in September of 2017, she got into the car to go to a friend's wedding shower and she noticed that her leg hurt. And then she stopped for gas and she found that her right leg was so horribly swollen and so painful that it was actually in danger of bursting. And she drove herself 
to the emergency room to have it looked at because she was completely confused, only to be told that it was terminal cancer and that there was really nothing they could do other than give her enough chemo to make her bald and sick and buy her a few more months. But within a matter of four months, she would be dead. And she would be leaving behind a lovely husband, a good man, and a 13-year-old daughter. And as we sat in her living room and talked, she expressed her concerns, and one of her concerns that she was not doing this whole death thing right. She says, I want to do it right. And I, I didn't understand what that meant. And as we talked about what that meant to her, I asked her how she thought she was doing. And she said, I don't know. I never died before. And I had to say, me either, right? Isn't it wonderful when you're going through something that's hard that you've never been through before to find someone who has been through it before and who can be your helper and who can be your guide? And they can say, oh, yes, that happened to me. And here's how I got through it. Oh, don't do that. That's a bad mistake. Do this instead. And, and you treasure those people. You love their help. But when it comes to dying, those people are pretty hard to find, aren't they? When you're dying, all the people around you who can give you advice can only help so much because they never died before either. They don't know what it feels like to die. But Jesus knows exactly what it's like to die. He knows about pain. He knows about stress. He knows about grief and the crushing burden of concern for those who it is your duty to care for, but you can't care for because you won't be there to care for them. I mean, think about him on the cross. There were what are called the seven last words of Jesus. One of them was, woman, behold thy son, to his mother, and then to the apostle John, behold your mother. In other words, John, do me a solid. I'm worried about mom. Take care of my mom. He was in agony. He had very little breath left. That was one of his chief concerns. And I found that over and over again, that that is very many people's chief concern when they're facing death. He knows what it's like. He has submitted to death precisely in order to know what it's like. And he has the power and he has the ability to help you at that time. The Bible says precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. It's very precious to him. Therefore, Hebrews 2.13 says, I will put my trust in him. You see, you can trust Jesus for the dying time. And finally, you can trust Jesus for what's on the other side of death. You can trust Jesus for eternity. You know, one morning in the late 90s when we were living in Minneapolis, I was driving to my seminary classes on, on I-694, which is the outer beltway of Minneapolis, and I felt, spiritually speaking, a very unique and strange experience. I felt as though, spiritually speaking, a great black hole suddenly opened at my feet, this yawning pit that I couldn't see the bottom of and that I was in danger of falling in. 
And in that moment when that pit opened up in my mind's eye, I was seized by the thought, what if everything I believe about God, what if everything I believe about spiritual things is wrong? What if it's a lie? What if the Buddhists are right and I'm wrong? What if the Muslims are right and I'm wrong? And I only find out after I die and it's too late to do anything about it. What if the atheists are right and there's nothing there? And, and this was, a, I believe very firmly, this was a spiritual attack that the Lord allowed for his good purposes, but it was, it was like vertigo. And a real fear and a real despair gripped me in that moment. What if everything that I'd given my life to was wrong? How could I know? And then in the midst of that swirl of confusion and that swirl of, the swirl of anxiety and despair, I had this thought. What if someone had gone there, had died, you know, not like one of these near-death experiences where, where you're almost dead or you're dead for a few minutes and you come back. What, what if someone was like dead, dead, you know, like days, like maybe three days, and someone who was reliable, someone who was trustworthy, who could tell us what's on the other side, who could see for himself and then come back to life and tell us what's there so that I could know. If only someone had died and risen again, then I would be able to put my confidence in what that person said. And then I kind of went, duh, someone did. And, and he said that what's over there for those who put their confidence in him is mansions and intoxicatingly beautiful gardens. That's the word paradise is a Persian loan word that means garden, like a palace garden. And, and an eternal dinner party where I won't be allergic to anything on the menu. I can eat eggs, I can eat ice cream, I can eat tofu, I can eat peanut butter, I can eat all that I want. I can eat it till it runs out my ears and I won't get fat. Where I won't sweat ever again because the sun never beats down with scorching heat. Where God dries every tear from my eyes. In our Wednesday night spiritual formation group, we were talking about the glimpses of heaven itself that we get in the scriptures. And much of what we see when someone like Daniel or Isaiah or Ezekiel or the Apostle John, when they tell us about what they saw, it ranges from the weird to the frankly terrifying. And Jesus comes along and you think, well, I'm not sure I want to spend the next 10,000 years throwing my crown on the ground and then picking it up and throwing it down again, or watching the 24 living elders do that. I'm pretty sure I'll get tired of the words holy, holy, holy after a while. And so we're, we're like, I'm not sure that you know, heaven's gonna be all that cool. And the one who knows comes along and he says, don't worry about it, I've got you. Since my resurrection and ascension, I have been working to prepare a place for you, just for you, special order. I know you inside and out. I know what you like. Isn't it nice when someone knows what you like and they do exactly what you like without being asked? Jesus says, I know what you like and I'm gonna take care of you. 
and I'm gonna prepare a place for you. Special order. So child, just trust me. Trust me for eternity. You know, there's a, a wonderful little, I don't know, if, I wouldn't call it a poem, but whatever I'm gonna call it, I'm gonna call it this. And, and it goes like this. When I first met Christ, it seemed as though life was rather like a bike ride, but it was a tandem bike. And I noticed that Christ was in the back helping me pedal. I don't know just when it was that he suggested we change places, but life has not been the same since. When I had control, I knew the way. It was rather boring, but it was predictable. It was the shortest distance between two points. But when he took the lead, he knew delightful long cuts. Up mountains, through rocky places, at breakneck speeds, it was all I could do to hang on. And even though it looked like madness, he just said, pedal. I was worried. And I was anxious and asked, where are you taking me? He laughed and he didn't answer. And I started to learn to trust. I forgot my boring life and entered into the adventure. And when I'd say, I'm scared, he'd lean back and he'd touch my hand. He took me to people with gifts that I needed, gifts of healing and acceptance and joy. And he said, give the gifts away. They're extra baggage, too much weight. So I did. I gave them to the people that we met and I found that in giving, I received, and still our burden was light. I did not trust him at first in control of my life. I thought he'd wreck it, but he knows bike secrets. He knows how to make it bend to take sharp corners. He knows how to jump to clear high rocks. He knows how to fly to shorten scary passages, and I'm learning to shut up and pedal in the strangest places. And I'm beginning to enjoy the view and the cool breeze on my face with my delightful, constant companion, Jesus Christ. And when I'm sure that I just can't do anymore, he just smiles and he says, pedal. Have you trusted Christ? Have you come to him in repentance and faith and said, Jesus, I place all my confidence in you and I'm asking you to save me now. Forgive me for my sins and give me the gift of life everlasting, which I will begin living right here, right now with you by learning how to walk in trust with you. Have you done that? You know, Jesus isn't just about saying something agreeing with something so that you can go to heaven when you die and then you get on with your life. Jesus is about your life. It's about walking with him, moment by moment, day by day, listening to his voice, learning about him, interacting with him, doing what he says and finding out that cool things happen when you do. He wants to give you an adventure an adventure that goes on forever with him. And it starts with trusting him. And then it continues with trusting him for everything. Have you done that? And if not, why in the heck not? I mean, is your life that wonderful without him? Are you that happy and satisfied? Lose that life 
and gain another. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer.